Well, good evening again to all of you. Welcome to the Medina East Campus of Grace Church. I am Pastor Seth. Thank you so much for being here tonight. Um, I just want to reiterate what Pastor Tony said. Um, if you are a guest here with us tonight, um, let me just reiterate again, like, we do count it an honor, an honor and a privilege that you would decide to spend the next hour or so with us here together to maybe hear from God in his word because we believe that the Bible has like everything we need for life and God's message for us, but also to check out the community and things that are going on here at Grace Church and, and what, what kind of community God is building here. We're super excited about it, so likewise, we are just excited that you are here as well. So thank you for that. Uh, so for the rest of us, if you've been around our campus for the last six or seven weeks, uh, many of you know that we have been in a series that we've been in. You can see it all, also behind the screen, um, or behind me on the screen. We've been in a series called Teach Us to Pray for these last six or seven weeks. And um, so throughout this conversation, we have basically been taking a look at uh, what is undoubtedly the most popular or most well-known prayer in all of the Bible, and arguably maybe the most important prayer that we uh, see or that we kind of receive from the Bible and its story. And so what we've been doing is week after week, we've been looking at little segments of kind of following this prayer through. Um, We could find the prayer in Matthew 6, uh, verses 9 through 13. And so each week we've been taking like a two lines by two lines chunk look at this prayer. And here's what we've been doing throughout it all. We've basically been saying, all right, so we want to ask the question of all uh, all these conversations why does Jesus give us this model prayer? Why does he want us to pray? And then furthermore, we're also asking when we pray, what is it exactly that we are to pray for? So the why and the what. And so that's what we've been doing. So actually this weekend, so tonight, we are going to close down the conversation, close down the series, and we are going to look at one verse, one verse tonight, and that would be Matthew 6, verse 13, the last two lines of the Lord's Prayer. So if you brought your Bibles, go ahead and turn there. Or if you got a smartphone or other device, iPad, etc., you can go ahead and turn there as well. Um, it'll be on the screen behind me as we read it. Again, it's very short. Uh, but if you want to follow along in a Bible, and maybe you don't have a Bible with you, there are some Bibles under the seats in front of you. Please go ahead. That'll be on page 600, I believe, 87 in those Bibles. And so I encourage you to turn there. One last thing uh, before we get started. If you don't have a Bible to call your own, you just don't have one, take one of those Bibles under the seats in front of you. Again, we think it's really valuable that we have, that you have God's word and we send you away with that. So again, Matthew chapter six, verse 13, real short, let's dive right in. Basically says Jesus in this model prayer says, and lead us not into temptation, But deliver us, and the NIV, the version we're kind of reading out of, deliver us from the evil one. You'll notice that there is a footnote as well, that that could be just as easily translated, deliver us from evil. So that might be a little bit more familiar for some of you. So lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. And so as we kind of look uh, at this passage or this one verse, I think there is a word that is located in this verse that is very common or is very familiar to us in our culture. Um, It's probably a word that maybe some of us have used on occasion, but if we don't use it frequently, we do hear it quite a bit floating around in different conversations in politics and in government and all that kind of stuff. And so um, when we think about this particular word, it's this word evil. I think a lot of times what will naturally happen to us is when we hear this word, there will be some immediate things that start coming to the forefront 
of our mind. And usually, I feel like, when we use this word evil, we make these immediate soci- associations with like people that we either know or people that we've heard about throughout the history of the world in our history classes in high school, or maybe institutions or organizations or other events. And again, I think what happens is we hear this word, and there's kind of like a flood of different things that come to the forefront of our mind. Now, if you don't believe me, uh, allow me to have you enter into a little experiment that I undertook this past week as I was preparing for this conversation. So here's what I decided to do to kind of prove my point, okay? I decided I'm going to go on to Google, and I'm going to run a search for two words. And my search was evil people. Evil people. And so, honestly, the, the return on investment for that search was nothing short of fascinating. I don't know if you guys know this, but there are scores and scores of websites that are literally ranking the most evil people that have ever existed on the face of the earth. It's kind of creepy if you ask me, but nevertheless. But as I started to kind of sort through some of this and scan the results, it was really fascinating because the names and the organizations of the events that started to reappear on each of these lists, I started thinking, well, wait a minute. If I had time to think about this, like who I would consider would be evil or what I would consider to be evil, if I had some time to think about it, to devote to it, I'd probably say some very similar things. And so let me just give you, give you a couple of the results that came up that seemed to be most common. Now, the first one, the near unanimous number one for all the lists that I found was, anybody want to take a guess? Yes, I knew it. I knew you guys were the seven o'clock service. You guys are the best service. So yeah, Adolf Hitler was the near unanimous number one. And I think for us that we start to nod our heads when we think about that. Like that makes a lot of sense. I mean, when you start thinking about Hitler, if you know even a, a shred of the evidence of what he did, like you're equating him with the Holocaust, right? You're equating him with genocide, the eradication, or at least the attempt at an eradication of an entire people group. And, and on top of that, you think about all the war casualties that were as a result of him being uh, the lead of the Nazi party and ruler over Germany in the 1930s and 40s. Such that I think when we hear a name like Hitler, right, we immediately associate it with evil. We're like, man, that guy was evil. And, and then we start saying things like, man, that guy, it's almost like he was cut from an entirely different and far more sinister mold than the rest of us. So we got Hitler. Uh, another actually organization that appeared on the list frequently was, um, was ISIS. So many of us are very familiar with what's going on in the Middle East right now. So ISIS is the Islamic State in Syria or it's ISIL or whatever. And so when we think about um, this group of people out there and all the atrocities that they're committing and they're literally wreaking havoc on an entire area of the world, we're like, yeah, we could easily pull that word evil out. And I think maybe rightly so. It's just what they're doing is evil. So much so that even the United Nations, this sort of world governing body, not really, I guess, but we'll call it that. Um, <clears throat> this world governing body has specifically and officially denounced ISIS and labeled them a terrorist organization. And we think about like the, not only just the beheadings of innocent people, but on television recorded And we think about, like, the United Nations has literally said that as a terrorist organization, they have committed what they call human rights abuses, that they have desecrated historical, religious, and cultural sacred sites, and they literally have said that these human rights abuses have been coupled with war crimes of the the severest variety. 
So you've got Hitler, right? You've got ISIS, which makes a lot of sense to me and probably to you. But, but for all of that, <clears throat> I also hear people using the word evil when referring to the Pittsburgh Steelers. That, that's where I got an amen. That's excellent. I love it. No, it's great. Thank you. The Pittsburgh Steelers, right? Well, especially, especially if you're a Browns fan. I feel really bad for you if you're a Browns fan, by the way. But especially if you're a Browns fan, I mean, there is nothing more sinister, diabolical, and wicked than the fact that the Pittsburgh Steelers have had exactly three coaches in the last 40-plus years, especially when, as a Browns fan, we go through three coaches in about 40-plus days, don't we, Right? And so we, we think about this. Now, <clears throat> I'm not at all claiming that the, the, some mysterious or random evil quotient, uh, like that the Steelers are as high as ISIS or as Hitler. But nevertheless, we hear people, Browns fans, calling the Pittsburgh Steelers evil. And if you don't believe me on this one, all you got to do is buy, a, is buy a ticket to a Browns game. And by the way, they're in ready supply. <laughs> or you can have somebody pay you to take their ticket, which is probably more likely. But all you got to do is somehow find your way to a Browns game, sit down next to the guy that once he's had one too many beers in him, he'll say a whole host of things about the Steelers and other just pontifications of life in, in, that, in that scenario. So, so I think from this limited list, we start to piece together a little bit and we get a little bit more clarity on just kind of the way that our culture and our society understands and defines evil, kind of the knee-jerk reactions when we hear the word evil of some of the things that we are thinking. And so as I, as I thought about the list and some of these names and organizations, it dawned on me that there seems to be, at least in my opinion, the way I saw it, there seems to be like a, common, a couple common denominators that occur with regards to <clears throat> the things that populate these lists. And the first common denominator that I really saw, or like the first element, is that for the most part, when we talk about evil in our culture, Evil is pretty much what I would call like out there, okay? So evil is foreign to us. It's not like us. It's alien to us. And I mean, it makes sense, right? The people that are part of our tribe or when we're looking at us, we're like, no, we're the good people, right? We're we're the ones that that are all thumbs up and all positive. It's them out there that's creating the problem. And usually we feel like it's an out there issue because when we hear about things that these evil people do, we're like, I don't understand what is motivating them to do this. And often it runs in direct tension and conflict with the values that we have as a society. And so typically what happens is we hear about these things. We don't understand why these people would do what they do, but we want to say something about it. So usually we'll protest or we'll denounce it. And then ultimately, at the end of the day, it sort of subsides and we, we go about our merry way, like we go on with our lives. And so for as much as I think that tendency is like, it, for us, evil is out there, the second common denominator that I really noticed in all these lists about evil is very much paired with this first one. I think, generally speaking, we look at evil or we label evil, at evil as those things that like, it's the out there thing that then starts to pose some kind of threat at some point to our way of living life, to the way that we live life that's very comfortable and it's very cozy. I don't think there's a better spot to um, kind of articulate this principle than with the, the right now, the issue that's going on with the Syrian refugee crisis, okay? 
Now, my goal in bringing this up is not to give you my opinion. It's not to persuade you into any kind of opinion. It's not even to ask for your opinion. It's simply to say this, that usually, typically, the issue with the Syrian refugee crisis is that those people from bad or evil areas out there are now coming all the more closer to us here. And I think if we can step outside our own opinions on the subject for a second, we have to say that what the argument and the debate is being fueled by is fear and anxiety of the evil out there that is coming closer to us and presenting us with a real, real challenge. And again, the point is not to make any assertions or make any claims or to argue one opinion or the other. It's just to make the point. And I think as we kind of turn the corner in our conversation, as we start to make our way back to Matthew 6 and the Lord's Prayer, this lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil, if we're going to bank on those cultural assumptions about what evil is, and we're going to apply those to Matthew 6 when Jesus says, pray, deliver us from evil, it starts to really bring up some questions. That sediment that lies at the bottom starts to get stirred up, and we start to ask questions like this. Well, is Jesus really asking me to be delivered from that kind of evil, like the evil that's out there that poses a threat, a perceived threat to me? When Jesus asks us to pray, deliver us from evil, is he asking me to ask his father to rescue me from a Syrian immigrant or ISIS or some religious extremist organization? Is that what Jesus is getting at here? Is Jesus asking us to ask his father that we be delivered from a North Korean nuclear agenda? Or is Jesus actually asking us to pray something very different? That if we could get a read on what the Bible's understanding of this word evil is, would revolutionize just what it means to pray, lead us not into temptation, but to deliver us from evil. And so I think that's what we need. I think we need to dispense with the cultural presuppositions of this word, and we need to start absorbing and adopting the Bible's definition of this word evil, how the Bible sees it. And rest assured, the Bible from cover to cover is replete with teaching about what good is and what evil is, because those are the two things that are held in contrast, right? The Bible is replete, but I think what we can do is we can start to boil down the teaching of the Bible with regards to evil into two overarching statements, two overarching categories, and I'll put them up on the screen for you. Number one, the Bible seems to think that evil is a disease. Evil is a disease. And number two, the Bible also teaches that evil is a person. Evil is a person. And so for the next little bit that we have together, I just want to go systematically through the first and the second, unpack it a little bit, let you know what I'm talking about, and then we'll circle back around to Matthew 6, 13, and I think we're going to find some very fascinating, interesting things. So this first one, evil as a disease, what are we talking about when we say evil as a disease? Well, for all that the Bible has to say about this, there is this really interesting passage that occurs a chapter later in the Gospel of Matthew, in Matthew chapter 7, verses 15 and forth following. And so keep in mind that in Matthew 6, Jesus is engaged in something that people have called the Sermon on the Mount. 
It's basically an extended teaching of Jesus. His disciples have gathered around. Crowds are increasingly gathered around and listen to what this guy has to say because he's very not only persuasive, but he's dynamic and he teaches really well. And then so Jesus actually uh, issues the Lord's Prayer and then he continues in the conversation for a couple more chapters. So this Matthew chapter 7 is very much still within the conversational flow of what Jesus is talking about here. And so in Matthew 7, verse 15, listen to what Jesus says. This is, this is really fascinating, and I think it's going to give us a clue as to what we mean by evil is a disease. All right, so here's the passage, Matthew seven fifteen and forward. Jesus says this, watch out for false prophets. Okay, so you're like, where is this coming from? Well, Jesus is basically, in this passage, he is going to talk specifically about how to distinguish a false prophet from a true prophet. Okay, and the way we should think about a prophet is simply someone who speaks on behalf of God with God's authority, the message of God to people. So a prophet is like a go-between. It's like, I'm going to speak this message. God wants to give you this message. It's a go-between. So here Jesus is talking about how do you distinguish from true and false prophets? So he says, watch out for these false prophets. They come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they are ferocious wolves. By their fruit, you will recognize them. Then he asked the rhetorical question, do people pick grapes from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? Now, I really want us to zero in on what he says here in verse 17. Likewise, every good tree bears good fruit. But a bad tree, a bad tree bears bad fruit. And then he kind of says the reverse, right? He says, a good tree cannot bear bad fruit and a bad tree cannot bear good fruit. So this is a fascinating statement that Jesus makes, as simple as it might sound. It's really fascinating. And I just want to really quickly say that our goal here in looking at this passage is not to actually like get to Jesus's main point of what he's teaching in this section. Although it's a fantastic main point, it would do you really well to go ahead and study this and dig in because what he's saying is awesome. But what I really want to focus on here is this kind of universal illustration that Jesus uses about a tree and its fruit. A universal illustration that he uses to get out some kind, of, some kind of nature of how Jesus feels or thinks or sees this idea of good and evil. And so I think this is such an effective illustration. Like, guys, I literally tried to find a better illustration, something that maybe would connect more with our modern context or whatever. And then I'm like, Seth, you're an idiot. This is the Son of God we're talking about here. It's a pretty apt illustration. And for that matter, we have all encountered a tree at some point in our lives, right? So this this is a really great illustration. And essentially, what Jesus is doing here is he is giving us what we already know to be true. Okay, and what is that? Well, it's this. You know what kind of tree you have by the observable fruit it produces, Boom, mic drop, right? Really big revelation, right? You know what kind of tree you have by the observable fruit it produces. Guys, we all know this, right? Apple trees don't produce oranges, right? Apple trees, and that's kind of what he says, like, do figs produce thorn thistle things? No, of course not. So we all know that apple trees produce apples, You don't need to do extensive DNA testing on a tree to figure out that this is the case. The outcome of what that thing is going to produce will tell you everything that you need to know about what that thing is. 
All right, so <clears throat> let me go from here. Let me plot a couple things up on the screen that I think will really be helpful for us. You see, in the NIV Bible, when we look at this passage, there are two adjectives to describe the two different trees, right? There's good and there's bad, okay? Now, Jesus, or or according to the NIV, which is a thoroughly great translation, by the way, um, Jesus uses this adjective twice, right? One adjective twice and then another adjective twice. But actually, if you take it all the way back to the original Greek, the original language that it was written, Jesus doesn't just use two adjectives. He actually uses four. And I think this is significant for us. So here's what we're going to do. Just real quick, we're going to populate something on the screen. It's going to be in English. Don't worry. Um, We're going to populate it on the screen, verse 17 on the screen. We're going to put it into English, but we're going to uh, put the ordering of the words as they are in the original language. It's fun, right? This is great. So here's what Jesus says in verse 17. Therefore, every, I'm sorry, every tree good, and by the way, in Greek, you could put adjectives before or after the noun. It didn't matter. So the adjective good is modifying tree, okay? Therefore, every tree good, fruit healthy, it bears. Interesting. Every tree good, fruit healthy, it bears. Now, this is fascinating. But diseased tree, fruit evil, it bears. But diseased tree, fruit evil, it bears. And so, again, like an apple tree produces apples, a good tree produces something that is utterly healthy. It's orderly. It's beautiful. And here's what Jesus wants us to see. It is in line, it's hitting the mark of what that tree was originally designed to do. It's producing good fruit. Now, the bad tree, on the other hand, is still, it's still a tree, right? But the bad tree, the evil tree, is skewed. It's missing the mark because it has an internal disease that keeps it from hitting the target of what a tree is designed to do in the first place, which is to bear fruit. And so another way of translating this word disease is like rotten or decayed. It gives you this almost image of something that was built upright and straight that's now been bent, crooked, or it's been twisted or distorted. And so, again, the bad tree or the evil tree also produces something, but it doesn't hit the mark of what it was designed for. And so Jesus, the word that Jesus uses for this missing the markedness is the word it bears evil. And so it's interesting because this word evil is 100% identical to what we find back in Matthew 6, 13 at the end of the Lord's Prayer. Letter for letter, the same exact word. And so what I think happens is this tree metaphor, it helps us out very tremendously because what, what it's saying is, is that Jesus doesn't consider good and evil as some abstract concept. Like, oh, there are some people that just happen to be born good and they're awesome. And then other people, no, they're evil, they're bad, shame on you, smack the wrist, let's go get them. Like as though God was predisposed to want to go get some people who were bad and just love and cherish those people that were good. Instead, Jesus is saying that good, again, is anything that hits the bullseye. Anything that hits the target of what that thing was originally designed to do. And so a working biblical definition then of evil, on the other hand, is something that was originally made for a good purpose designed for a good purpose that has been bent, that has been twisted, 
It has been fractured. It's been broken and missing the target of what it was beautifully designed to do. And so now as we start to pull this metaphor, it's not about trees, right? So we start to pull this thing back into us as human beings. It starts to make sense. The Bible is replete with this teaching that in Romans 3.23 probably puts it best. The Bible says that all have sinned and have fallen short of the glory of God. All have sinned. We have a disease. And as a result, we fall short of this glory of God, this original design of God for us in his goodness and his love for us to design us in such a way that we would reflect his character, his attributes, his heart, everything that is amazing about God. That's what we were designed for. But we have this disease of sin, this power, this principle, this disease that lords over us that we cannot, as hard as we try, get rid of. And Jesus seems to indicate that the result of this sin, the result for every one of us who are entrapped and enslaved by this power, will receive the outcome <coughs> excuse me, of our lives, the result of sin, and this will be called evil. It's not an abstract, you're evil, this one's evil. There's almost a, a tragic tone in Jesus' use of evil. Ah, oh, what a tragedy. I made it this way, and it's skewed. It's distorted. It's not hitting the mark. This is, this is terrible. And so when the Bible talks about evil, when Jesus talks about evil, he never gives us the indication that evil is out there somewhere, right? He doesn't give us that it's over there in the Middle East, or over there in North Korea, or over there in Africa, Although when we see the atrocities done by people who have the same disease as we do, we ought not to just sit back and say nothing. We should call it what it is. It's skewed human beings, the result of their conduct and the sin that's in them, doing what it does best, destruction. But however, the Bible teaches that the human heart has been tragically abducted by this power of sin, such that we cannot get rid of it on our own. And therefore, guys... Sin, evil, is not out there. When the Bible speaks of evil, it wants us to say that evil and sin is in here. Because we have a disease. Now, <clears throat> I understand what this would produce. Like, some of us could get really offended by this. And I think almost rightly so. Like, this rubs me the wrong way. And, and I think <clears throat> a lot of times what we'll say in our heads are things like this. Well, wait a minute. You're saying that I'm just as evil as the guy that's slaughtering Christians and other people in the Middle East. Wait, I'm not doing that. I've never killed anybody. I've wanted to kill somebody, plenty of people. But I've never killed anybody, let alone I've never engaged in genocide. I'm not Hitler. That guy is completely different from me. No way. Now, if that's you, I, I get it. I'm right there. That, this is a tension, and, and it's, it's frustrating sometimes to wrap our minds around but I think what happens is when the Bible thinks about the disease and the human condition, it doesn't do the same kind of math that we do. See, he, here's the math that we'll do, right? We'll go right back to a catalog of all the good things that we have done. 
And then we'll also go to this supplementary catalog of all the things that I haven't done that the people out there have. But again, the Bible doesn't do the same kind of math that we do. And the Bible is saying that the disease isn't even about the things that we do in the first place. We'll default to the merit-based earning mentality that is a part of our culture. But the Bible says, no, all have sinned. The Bible says that these things are the result of what kind of tree we are. And the Bible says that we are hopelessly diseased, every one of us. Again, all have sinned, everybody, and fallen short of the glory of God. And so, while this is thoroughly biblically accurate, we haven't exposed the other side of the conversation. Evil is, the Bible says it's a disease, but it also says that evil is a person. Now, what do I mean by that? Well, let's, let's trace it back. Again, Matthew 6, 13, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil or the evil one. Now, this is an interesting debate when we hit this word evil here at the end. Scholars have debated this for quite a bit, and I actually don't think there should be a debate. I think what Jesus is intending is both. But scholars debate this, that the word evil, back in the original language, could be taken in what's called the masculine case or the neuter case. What we're not talking about is making sure male cats don't reproduce, okay? This is what, this is, let me just dumb it down, it's so easy, right? Neuter, all that means is it's not gendered, okay? So in English, we have masculine is he, feminine is she, neuter is it. Okay, so if it's neuter here, it's lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the it of evil, this disease that we have been talking about for the last 10 minutes or so. But if evil is indeed in the masculine case, it takes on a very different shape. It's lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from he who is or the one who is evil. And what Jesus is saying here is he's referring to this dark, shadowy figure that reappears throughout the whole Bible, this adversary of God's people that has often been called the devil or Satan. Now, I know that even as I say that, some of you are probably like, here we go. All right, so Satan. Okay, right. Well, Seth, haven't we kind of like moved beyond that, right? Like, isn't Satan the product of like ancient cultures with archaic ways who really just leveraged the battle of good and evil so that people could just do good ethics. Like, they could just be better people, or they could keep people in check. I mean, can't we get rid of this red-horned creature on my left shoulder, harp-toting creature robed in white on my right shoulder? And and some of you, I I get it. Like, you might be like, well, can't we just have a conversation about this from a biblical standpoint without going there to the devil thing, right? Well, I don't know that we can. And here's what I think happens, is for some of us, or for a lot of us, our culture has taught us to view the idea of the devil and Satan a little like this. You're not just going to let him die like that, are you? My shoulder, Angel. Don't listen to that guy. He's trying to lead you down the path of righteousness. I'm going to lead you down the path that rocks. I'll come off it. He'll come off it. You. 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 You, Infinity. Ah. 
Listen up, big guy. I got three good reasons why you should just walk away. Number one, look at that guy. He's got that sissy stringy music thing. We've been through this. It's a harp, and you know it. All right. That's a harp, and that's a dress. Robe. Reason number two, look what I can do. <laughs> but what does that have to do with him? No, no. He's got a point. Listen, you guys. You're sort of confusing me, so, uh, be gone. Uh, or, uh, you know, however I get rid of you guys. That'll work. All right, so I think The Emperor's New Groove is like this secret Disney movie that's awesome, right? Like, nobody's ever heard of it. Love that movie. So, for as funny as I think that is, and for as much as I think it is a, uh, a way to describe how culturally a lot of times we think about the devil and all this, it, it contains, at least from the standpoint of the Bible, it contains a fundamental, like some fundamental flaws in it, okay? See, what this does with the angel on one side and the devil on the other is it produces this kind of mentality where when we think about Satan or the devil, that he is somehow just confined to our conscience. Meaning like he is the, the yin to the yang of the angel. And it's just to make sure that we have kind of like this inner war, inner battle to either do the right thing, lead me down the path of righteousness, or lead me down the path that rocks, right? But I think the Bible says it's much more intense than any of that. The Bible gives us every indication that the enemy, this Satan, this devil, has a role and a, a desire to destroy human life those who were made to reflect who God is in his character, to destroy them such that this enemy desires to take the disease that is already in you that would lead to your death and destruction and make sure that that disease gets thoroughly run out into every nook and cranny of your life. That's the biblical portrait of the evil one. And I think if we just take a quick second here, we, let's just put a couple scriptures on the screen of what the Bible says about this figure, this devil, this Satan. John eight forty four. he was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. Whenever he speaks a lie, he speaks from his own nature for he is a liar and he's the father of lies. Revelation 12, 9. The serpent of old who is called the devil and Satan deceives the whole world. The whole world. 1 Peter 5, 8. Your adversary, like your opponent, guys. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around. Look at that imagery. Think about that for a second. Prowls around like a roaring lion waiting, seeking for someone to absolutely eat up and devour. John 10.10, 10, the thief, Jesus is talking about the devil. He's talking about Satan. The thief comes only to steal, to kill, and destroy. As we just take a sampling of the statements that we find in the Bible about the devil, we are not only struck by his character and the fact that he is an adversary and an opponent to God's people, but also we're struck by the vicious nature of his all-out assault on who we are. His all-out war on who we are. It's not the classic misunderstanding that, oh, the devil made me do that. Like, he made me buy this, or he did this. I just can't help it. It has nothing to do with that. Instead, Satan is the one who continues to heap logs on the fire that's already burning because we have the disease of sin inside of us. So Satan didn't start the fire, which is a terrible Billy Joel reference. 
Satan doesn't start the fire, guys. That fire is burning well enough on its own because of who we are and the fact that we're missing the mark. But what Satan is doing, I love this prowling around like a roaring lion. Satan is walking around the fire and he's picking every twig, every stick, every log, everything that would burn. Plastic is great. Everything that would burn and he's heaping that thing on the fire because what's his goal? He's your adversary. He wants to make sure that the fire that already started in you is worked out so, so radically that it results in your destruction. Your absolute, utter, and unequivocal destruction. Because again, remember, the disease is already in us. It's the devil that looks to see that that disease is worked through and through, not only in us, but in every relationship and in every good thing that God has given us to be reflectors of him in this world. Evil is a disease, and evil is also a person. And I think these are the ingredients that we need to start piecing this thing together. Again, back in Matthew six thirteen, when Jesus says, deliver us from evil, Jesus is encouraging us in this last part of the prayer to invite the power of God into the real war that wages for my soul and for yours. Lead us not into temptation and deliver us from evil. If we were going to reword it in light of all that we now know about how the Bible understands evil, we might reword it to say like, this prayer is you and me saying, God, please, Keep me from those environments and keep me from those situations in my life where I know that my propensity is to contribute to my own destruction. To default, as I always do seemingly, to those old and diseased habits. This prayer is is Jesus' invitation to ask God, God, rescue me from myself and my own evil and twisted inclinations. And God, save me, rescue me out of the evil one that plots my demise constantly. I think that this is a prayer of wisdom above all else. It's a prayer asking for insight. It's a prayer asking God to say, God, I don't even trust myself. I know that when given the choice on my own, I will go right back to sin. I will go right back to the thing that destroyed me. So God, I need your wisdom. I need your help. I need you to not lead me there. I need you to lead me out. I need to follow you. I need to figure out what life really is all about and why you created me and all that amazing stuff. What I need, God, though, is the wisdom to know those environments where I'm just gonna go right back. They're just going to trigger that sin in me and I'm going to go right back to the things that I've always done. This is a prayer where we're asking God, we're appealing to him to give us the wisdom and to to have him exercise his power in a real way to lead us out of our own brokenness and into the freedom that he longs to give us so that we can hit the target of his intent for our lives. And the prayer is one that's like, God, I know, I know that the odds are stacked against me. Like, I've got this thing inside of me that's a disease, and I've got an evil one that seeks my destruction. But it's also a prayer of wisdom to say, but God, I know that you have said in 1 John that the reason the Son of God appeared, the reason Jesus appeared, is to destroy the works of the devil, to eradicate them. So that we might be delivered out of that old stupid life and into the life that God wants for us. Guys, when we see good and evil for what they are biblically, 
This becomes a powerful plea of God to use his power to rescue us in some real and vivid ways. This prayer is a prayer that says, God, rescue my wayward heart. Give me the understanding and the knowledge to know when I'll go back and keep me from those environments and rally your people around me to ensure that I'm accountable to not go back there because I don't want that sick, twisted stuff. I want the life that you have for me. And as we think about it in light of this, some of you might already be asking, okay, well, that's a good understanding of good and evil biblically. That's a very inspirational thing to say. But how does that work out practically, like in my life tomorrow? Where where, where do I take this? Where, Where do I go with this? And let me just tell you, there is no more practical application or teaching, I think, in the entire Bible than what we see here and the pleas that we are asking for. Let, 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 me just get, let me just get brutal. Let, let me just get real with you, okay? Real life situations. Some of you guys are going through a ridiculously difficult season and tension in your marriages or in your relationships with people that you love and care for. But the thing is distorted. It's fractured. It's broken. It's evil, The relationship is evil. It's not hitting the target of of a good, loving relationship that God designed us for as human beings. Some of you are experiencing that really vividly right now. But this, this mentality shift that God has given us in this prayer and Jesus has given us, it makes all the difference. It helps us to understand that, wait a minute, when I'm in tension and I'm in conflict with somebody in my life that I care and love, that I care about and love, my struggle isn't with them. Paul says that in Ephesians 6. He's like, our struggle, guys, is not against flesh and blood. It's not me versus you. But he says our struggle is against principalities and powers and the rulers and the authorities in the heavenly places. What's he talking about? Our war is against Satan and every one of his minions and every one of his tools and schemes to try to tank our faith. That's what we're after. And so now when we go to that marriage relationship, some of you are like, man, it's hanging by a thread and I can see that thread unraveling. The perspective shift is, shift is massive. God, give me the wisdom to see it. I'm not, it's not against her. It's not against him. I'm not fighting against them. I am fighting a real enemy that is looking to take what is already messed up in me and have it work thoroughly out in that relationship. The mentality shift, evil as a, as a disease and evil as a person, says that, first of all, I have a disease. What am I contributing to this whole thing? Maybe, guys, it's not, oh, she's not putting out anymore. Maybe, ladies, it's not, well, he doesn't do anything around the house, and he doesn't really, I, I can't talk to him, and I've lost connection. That may be true. But this perspective shift says, God, it's me. Shine the spotlight on me. Help me, Lord. Deliver me out of the evil of this relationship, the brokenness, the twistedness. Bring me out of that, God. Show me where I am in the wrong Created me this new perspective and this new heart. I could follow you in this relationship and follow it all the way to wholeness and all the way to healing. Because the struggle isn't against the person. Because the struggle is against an enemy that looks to destroy both you, her and him, and that relationship. I think also when we look at uh, other situations in life, this just becomes true. Some of us need to take this application to that struggle, that porn addiction that you have. 
In other words, like, oh, I just can't seem to, like, either the devil makes me do it. Nope. Okay, well, then I just don't know what happens. God's apparently not powerful enough to bring me out of that thing. It's like, wait a minute, no. The perspective shift, you're in a war. Radical circumstances call for radical measures to take in response to those circumstances. Lead me not into temptation. Deliver me from evil with that addiction. Looks like, God, let me know where those environments are where I will inevitably go back to it. Because it's wisdom to say that maybe it's not a good idea to be sitting up in front of a computer at 1.30 a.m. if that's a struggle. And maybe it's, God, give me the tools and the resources. Help me to know who's around me to help keep me accountable in that. Whether it's getting the internet filter and having my spouse set the password, or if it's getting connected in a relationship with another Christ follower where they can hold you accountable to those things and be like, what are you doing? What are you doing? What are you doing? Don't get messed up. Don't get caught up in that. Have God deliver you out of that. For some of you, it just looks like getting in a life group and start to build those trustworthy relationships with a few other people where you allow them the permission or you give them the permission in your life to call you out on that stuff because it's not because you're, you're bad, but it's because we are in a war. And the war, what hangs in the balance, guys, is your very soul. Your very soul. Radical circumstances call for radical responses. And the prayer, lead us not into temptation. God, take me out of that. Don't let me go back there. Give me the things in my life to equip me to not go back there again. And deliver us from evil. God, rescue me. Rescue this wayward heart. God has the power and the ability to redeem all of it. The relationships and yourself included. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this prayer that Jesus gives us as a model. Jesus, we thank you that you are the perfect son. You're the perfect human being. You're the one that shows us what the target looks like. And so God, we do pray that as we continue to pray this prayer in the coming weeks and months and years of our lives, God, I I pray that, Lord, that we would be further conformed to the image of Jesus. That we would look like Jesus, the one who not only gives us the model prayer, but secure the power at the cross that makes it a possibility for us to leverage the power of God to be led out of the old disaster of our lives and into something brand new that looks much more like the target that you have for us in reflecting you. God, I pray for every single person, myself included in this room. God, there, there is sin misses no one. We all have an inclination. We all have some kind of proclivity. We all have that snare that just seems to snag us constantly. God, we want to pray. We want to experience the power of the prayer. God, lead us not back into those things. Take us away. Draw us away from that dirt and that dysfunction. Deliver us from evil. And bring us into the path, Lord, that you have for us. That we would actually begin to, day by day and increasingly, reflect who you are and hit the target of all you have for us. God, as we sing and as we play, help us to continue to reflect on the goodness of who you are in offering us the gift of salvation and rescue out of those things and into a new life with you that will exist for all eternity. 
Jesus' name we pray.